Abraham's experience of this promise during his lifetime? And third, how does this promise point to Christ and the cross? So the verses just read deal with the promise of descendants. Descendants. What did this promise mean to Abraham? It's possible that Abraham desired children for some of the same reasons that plenty of people want children, because he felt some measure of wanting his life to matter beyond himself or wanting to leave a legacy or wanting to have someone to take care of him and Sarah in their old age. But when you read Abraham's story in Genesis, that's not the emphasis. We don't get a moment where God is like, hey, Abraham, he's a good dude. What should we give him that would make him happy? He's, he's always wanted kids. Can we throw him a bone here? After the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the beginning of chapter 12 actually reads more like God is saying something like this. <clears throat> Abraham, Abram at the time, sin has completely crippled this world. The human family tree is diseased. I've chosen to give you a central role in restoring humanity to uh, a fixed relationship with me. And how? I'm going to start a new humanity through you. I'm picking your branch of the family tree. And I'm going to revitalize it so that it will be what the rest of the tree was always meant to be. In that foundational passage in Genesis 12 that we're going to see time and time again tonight, this promise is framed as the promise to make Abraham a great nation. A great nation. When you read the rest of his story, you find out about a dozen times you find that promise being reiterated using a word translated offspring or seed, literally. I'm going to give you offspring, God says. Your seed will be on the receiving end of my blessing. Now let's, let's journey back to sophomore English for a moment. Offspring, seed, singular or plural? Yeah, technically singular, right? But can be used to denote a collective type of sense, right? So I can say my three-year-old son is my offspring. He's my seed, right? But I could also say my two sons are together, my offspring, or my seed. It's ambiguous, and it's actually like that in Hebrew too. This happens to be one of those times that the Hebrew word works just like our English word does. And we'll find tonight that singular plural ambiguity to be convenient as the story progresses. Let's zoom out here for a moment. To summarize what this promise of descendants meant for Abraham, after everything has gone wrong in the world and the whole human family tree is diseased, God determined to set things right for humanity as a whole by setting apart one family, starting with one man whose descendant or descendants, it's ambiguous, would be the instrument by which God would restore all of humanity's broken relationship with himself. So then, what was Abraham's experience of this promise during his lifetime? Did he get to see the great nation that was promised? He lived to 175, which is super old even for that time. Did he get to see a bunch of little mini Abes running around uh, all over the campsite? Not exactly. Two major obstacles came between Abraham and the enjoyment of seeing this particular promise fulfilled. One is the barrenness of his wife. He's given the promise at age 75. Sarah is 65 at the time. Even back in her prime years, she was as barren as barren could be. Now she's well past her prime. Genesis 18 tells us 
the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. But it's crazier than that even. 24 more years pass without a kid after the promise is made. Now, they're not silent years. God says, hey, take a look at the stars. That's what your offspring will be like in chapter 15. Great. So, but then Abraham turns 90, 95. Now he's 99. Sarah's 89. Still no signs of a pregnancy. Actually, we should clarify that because some point during those 24 years, Sarah said, look, Abraham, we got to make this happen. Why don't you sleep with my servant girl? Get your promised descendants that way. So Abraham has a son with her servant girl, a son named Ishmael. Disaster. God says, nope, that wasn't what I told you to do. And Ishmael is not the offspring that I promised you. So Abraham, Sarah, continue waiting. Then at 99 and 89, God comes to them again, chapter 18, and says, okay, this time next year, you'll have the child of the promise. Name him Isaac. And sure enough, when Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90, their son is born, the one who would inherit God's promises to Abraham. Happy ending to the fairy tale story. But the second obstacle. When Isaac grows up a little bit into an older boy or maybe a young man, God comes to Abraham in chapter 22 and says, take your only son whom you love and offer him up as a sacrifice. Now on several levels, this doesn't compute. God, what about the new humanity that you were going to start through my line? What about the great nation that you promised? What about your clarification in recent years that those promises could not be fulfilled through any other kids of mine, but had to be specifically through Isaac. If Abraham cried out to God with any of those questions, there's no indication that he ever got an answer. But Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham believed that God could even raise the dead. So he says, Isaac, let's go make a sacrifice on that mountain. And when Isaac, who is climbing the mountain while carrying the wood on his back for the sacrifice, asks his dad where the animal is for the sacrifice, Abraham answers, God will provide the lamb. Of course, after Abraham arranges the wood for the burnt offering and places Isaac on the altar and raises the knife to kill the son he loves, God stops him. And God provides a ram stuck in a nearby thicket to serve as a substitute sacrifice. And because Abraham had been willing to trust God enough to obey him, God reaffirms the promise of descendants right there in chapter 22, saying, because you obeyed me, Abraham, your descendants, they're going to be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. So the obstacles between Abraham and receiving this promise of descendants were massive. It'd be like if you were told that you're going to be, you make the Olympics as a sprinter, but you knew you were born with no legs, and, and, and by the way, you were told to throw your prosthetics into the river. How? How does a barren couple produce a great nation when they're called to sacrifice the one miracle child who is provided? But God overcomes each of the two obstacles. Overcomes the barrenness obstacle through the birth of Isaac and the sacrifice obstacle through the provision of a ram. And so... At the time of Abraham's death, he hasn't yet seen the great nation that was promised, but he has seen the birth of a son who will be the heir of the promise of descendants. So finally, how does this promise point to Christ and the cross? 
The rest of the story of the Old Testament is the story of that family line of Abraham and Isaac, the Jewish people. But there's a problem. As God reminds Abraham's descendants frequently throughout their story, they don't fare much better than the rest of humanity had been doing. So this new humanity that began with Abraham isn't proving to be a categorically more healthy branch on the human family tree, and that raises a question. Why exactly did God initiate this new humanity through Abraham again? We don't really find out until the opening words of the New Testament, penned 2,000 years after Abraham. Here's how Matthew starts his gospel. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, on down to David the king, and then David was the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, on down to Josiah, whose son was Jeconiah, and then after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, on down to someone named Mathan, who was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called This is where we finally see what God was up to when he was starting a new humanity through Abraham. God started a new humanity through Abraham, not because he thought Abraham's descendants were going to be able to succeed in their lofty calling to live as humanity was always intended to live. He knew they couldn't. God started a new humanity through Abraham because he had made plans from the beginning to insert himself into the story. And he intended to do so as part of this particular family. In other words, God himself in the flesh was going to humble himself to become the promised offspring that all of Abraham's other offspring failed to be. Friends, on this side of Jesus, we can see it a little more clearly. God in Abraham was not actually intending to create the perfect family, but rather to create the family that would produce the singular perfect human. God would send that human into a family that had been gifted with this particular set of laws and customs and language that would create the optimal categories to enable us to understand something that would otherwise be incomprehensible, namely, who this guy Jesus is, what exactly he's up to. What he's up to is not, first and foremost, teaching, though he was a great teacher. What he's up to is not, first and foremost, healing, though he healed many. The gospel accounts of Jesus' life make it clear that what he's up to all along is this. And as the gospel writers tell the story of Jesus' death, we see echoes of the Abraham narrative everywhere. For example, just as Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Isaac carried the wood up the mountains of Moriah to the place of his impending sacrificial death, we find Jesus... On Good Friday, carrying the wood up a mountain near Moriah to the place of his impending sacrificial death. And even the differences in their stories demonstrate that Abraham's story was pointing to the cross all along. For example, when Jesus reaches the top of the mountain with the sacrificial wood on his back, no ram shows up to take Jesus' place. Why? Because he was the lamb 
that Abraham had spoken to of his son, the lamb that Abraham told Isaac that God would send, the lamb to which the ram caught in the thicket was just a pointer, a shadow. In other words, Abraham spoke better than he knew. Jesus was actually the lamb who would die to take Isaac's place and to take our place. Sometime after Jesus' death and resurrection, Acts 8 tells the story of a childless man in Ethiopia expressing confusion as he reads these words from Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The Ethiopian eunuch wants to know, who's this talking about? And Philip, follower of Jesus, gets to start with this very passage and show his new friend that the one for whom Abraham's whole family line had been preserved died with no descendants. Who can speak of his descendants? He had his life snuffed out like a sheep taken to the slaughter. But Jesus' childless death was no setback for God. It had been God's plan all along that the one true offspring of Abraham would be slaughtered like a lamb so that the new humanity could escape that fate of death that we deserved. And so the knife that was only raised over Isaac penetrates the side of Isaac's offspring, Jesus. And because Jesus died in the place of humanity, we all get to be included in the new humanity. We all get to be counted as children of Abraham, whether or not we're blood members of Abraham's family, if we'll only latch on to Christ in faith. Lord, we thank you for the gift of inclusion in the new humanity, that family, that we get to be children of Abraham by faith in you. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son Jesus on the cross, dying without descendants so that we could inherit the promises made to Abraham and the promises you've made to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.
Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look for the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests but the son of the man has nowhere to lay his head.
Now we turn our attention to the promise of land first. What does this promise mean to Abraham? Just like with the promise of descendants, the promise of land means more when we consider it in context. From the very beginning of everything, God establishes a special relationship between humans and the land that maybe we post-industrial folk who don't spend a lot of time with our fingers in the dirt don't necessarily appreciate. God creates humanity, Adam in Hebrew, out of the dirt, Adama. From then on, when there's harmony with God, and that's a big caveat, when there's harmony with God, each depends on each other. Humans depend on the land. The land depends on humans. It's mutually beneficial. But when humanity rebels against God, one of the first effects is that the human-land relationship is severely damaged. The ground stops readily producing fruit. Now humans have to work by the sweat of their brow just to eke out a living. Adam and Eve are cast out of the land where they had connected with God in a unique way. And then as the narrative progresses, increasing rebellion against God leads to increasing alienation from the land, exile, natural disasters. Humans' relationship with God and the land are inextricably tied to one another. So, when we get to chapter 12 of Genesis, see God promising Abraham a particular special land, our antenna go up. If God is promising a restored relationship between humans and the land, that should only be able to happen in the context of an unbroken relationship with God. Could it be that God intends to place his special presence in this land, in the midst of Abraham's family? In summary, the land promise means much more to Abraham than it would maybe to a North Shore resident purchasing a few acres up in Wisconsin. Abraham understands that whenever that day comes and the land promise is fulfilled, it'll be a reconnecting with the soil after generations of estrangement. It'll be coming home after feeling displaced. It'll be a chance to rest after years of wandering. It'll be renewed security after the vulnerability of nomadic life. And most of all, it'll be a resumption of something like what Adam and Eve had, a sort of special presence of God among his people in a particular place to bless them in a unique way. So then, what was Abraham's experience of this promise during his lifetime? Well, when God calls Abraham in Genesis 12, remember, Abraham already had a home. He was living in Ur and then in Haran with his extended family. But while that may have been home, with a lowercase h, it wasn't home, like capital H, home. It's not much of an overstatement to say that, in this sense, Abraham's story is the story of the Bible, just in miniature. And that story is actually the same as every great story in every book you've ever read and movie you've ever watched. Uh, Home, away, home. Starting with the lowercase h, home. And then a movement away from that home, a feeling of displacement, things go wrong before there's a restoration. But the restoration is better than the original. So capital H, home. There's something built into us by God that loves that story. Home, away, home perhaps because it's the outline of the grand story of everything that he's been delighted to orchestrate. Abraham had a home, but God calls him from that home to wander for a hundred years. 
living a nomadic life in tents, all for the hope of one day when he will come home to a place that's everything home was ever meant to be. That's why Abraham's willing to go, even though God only tells him, hey, I'll show you where to go when you get there. There's a yearning in Abraham that I think we all share to some degree, a yearning for home. But pretty soon after his arrival in the promised land, there's a famine there. Chapter 12, Abraham decides to leave the land out of fear that he'll starve. He goes to Egypt. It's almost disastrous, but God saves him from there and brings him back to the land of promise. And then upon his return to the land in chapter 13, God takes him up on a mountain to show him with greater specificity just what will one day belong to his descendants. Chapter 14, Abraham fends off, fends off an attack on the land from enemy kings. Then in chapter 15, God reaffirms the promise of land in the most vivid of ways. Do you remember this chapter? God initiates a covenant ceremony. Abraham seems familiar with the practice from his dealings maybe with other Near Eastern peoples. Abraham's instructed to cut a particular assortment of animals in halves and place them opposite each other, the halves opposite each other, so that their blood will run into a path between the pieces. And in such a ceremony, which we have many records of in ancient texts, the two sides then walk between the pieces, one after the other, as if to say, if I don't keep my end of this agreement, may this be done to me. May I be treated like these animals that were cut in two. So God calls Abraham to walk before him and be blameless. But for God's own part, he said, my side of this covenant is that I promise to give your descendants this land. So far, just following the normal script for these ceremonies, except for the unusual detail that God is one of the contracting parties. But then we get to the most shocking conclusion to the ceremony. God walks between the pieces, but then the account ends. Abraham never walks through it. This would have been unheard of in this sort of transaction. In ancient Near East, it was rare that the greater party would even demean themselves to walk through at all, much less walk through without requiring the lesser party to walk through as well. But here's God effectively saying, if this covenant is broken on either side, May this be done to me. So surely Abraham gets to see the promise of land fulfilled during his lifetime. But no. God makes it clear that this one is a long-range promise. Chapter 17, the land is called the everlasting possession of Abraham's family. But in chapter 15, God indicates that on the shorter term, Abraham's descendants will be displaced for 400 years before returning to make their home there again. Yet, before he dies, Abraham does get to purchase some land. A single burial plot, actually, for his wife. The first permanent acquisition in the land that God promised to him. Yet, when Abraham dies, he's, he dies a wanderer. And the only land he's able to leave behind for Isaac is that burial cave in the field attached to it. So how does this promise point us to Christ and the cross, the promise of land? And sure enough, after Abraham's story, Abraham's descendants are removed from the land, just as God said they would be, stuck in Egypt for 400 years until God brings them back to inherit their possession. Then, when they stubbornly rebel again, God has them exiled back out of the land 
for a few generations until he brings them back into the land again a few hundred years before Christ. That exile exodus pattern raises the question, how could God keep bringing them back to the land time and again when they'd been so rebellious, when they had consistently failed so miserably to obey the terms of that covenant that he made with Abraham? But God answered that question already, didn't he? Back in Genesis 15, by walking between the animal pieces. Here's what I mean. God tells Abraham's great-great-grandchildren to start using those same animals that were cut in half in Genesis 15 to make sacrifices day after day for generations, for centuries. And I don't know, perhaps a perceptive descendant of Abraham would ask one day while observing these sacrifices taking place at the temple in Jerusalem, hey, if none of these sacrifices that we're making can deal once and for all with our sin that keeps getting us removed from this land, where's all this headed? What's all this sacrificing for? Enter Jesus of Nazareth. Talk about somebody displaced from the land. At his birth, nobody had a place for him to stay. As a child, he and his family, just like Abraham 2,000 years before and just like Abraham's descendants 1,000 years uh, before Jesus, were forced to flee to Egypt until God brought them back. Just like Abraham had to live in tents with no foundations, Jesus' self-description of his living situation is this. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but I have no place to rest my head. Here was the God-man leaving his heavenly home to become homeless? Why? As it turns out, he became homeless so that we could have a home with him forever. Capital H. But how did he do it? How did he secure the purchase of a home for us in the land that will be our everlasting possession? He did so on that Roman cross 2,000 years ago when he made good on God's 2,000-year-old promise. I'm referring to when God said in Genesis 15, may this be done to me if the covenant is broken so that the promise of the land will remain intact in the person of Christ on that cross. That's exactly what happened. And Hebrews 13 reflects on the cross. The emphasis there is on actually the location of the execution site. With Jesus being in effect exiled from the land upon his death. God himself in the flesh taken outside the holy city to a cursed place. And after his torturous death in that forsaken place, his dead body doesn't even get a resting spot of its own. He's laid in a borrowed tomb. Why all this displacement in the story of Jesus' life? Why is Jesus so dislocated from connection to the land? the land that he created from his birth all the way to his death it's so that we could have a forever homeland in other words while you and I deserve the covenant curse of displacement from home Jesus took it for us so that we though undeserving might inherit the forever home capital H God promised to the children of Abraham
Lord, as we feel our own feelings of dislocation, displacement here on earth. We thank you that we have a home coming with a capital H, a land that we will inherit as children of Abraham by faith in your presence, unadulterated presence forever. We thank you that you did that at great cost to yourself, taking the punishment that we deserved, the covenant curse of dislocation, displacement from the land, and therefore from the loving presence of God in a sense, so that we could inherit the promise. to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood. Here's the power be 
Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. I will surely bless you, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. We're on the third promise, blessing to the nations. What does this promise mean to Abraham? Do you notice how from the beginning, God has an eye on blessing all the nations on earth, even as he expresses his intention to bless Abraham's family in particular? Take a look at it again. I will bless you and make your name great for your own happiness. No. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then later on, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse because I only care about you and nobody else? No. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The one true God is making it clear to Abraham right from the beginning that Abraham isn't being invited to enter into a relationship with some merely tribal or regional deity like all the other so-called gods that Abraham has encountered in his 75 years of life. This God is claiming what no other God would have claimed, namely that he is the God of all people on the earth. And the corollary to that is that he has an affection in his heart toward all families on earth, a desire to bless all of them. That includes, of course, the families on earth who were ignoring the one true God at the time. It includes the families on earth who were rejecting the one true God at the time of Abraham's call. It includes my ancestors in Ireland who were worshiping the rocks and the trees at the time. It probably includes your ancestors as well in, in Italy or Ghana or India who were doing the same. God was going to bless Abraham in part because he loved our ancestors and he wanted to see even our families blessed through Abraham and his offspring so what was Abraham's experience of this promise during his lifetime Abraham's story works out exactly as the Genesis 12 promise says it would individuals families nations they are either cursed or blessed depending on how they deal with Abraham so Pharaoh, king of Egypt, puts Abraham's wife Sarah in peril by taking her into his harem in chapter 12. So God sends plagues on Pharaoh's family until he lets them go. Four kings go to war against Abraham in chapter 14. Their armies are soundly defeated. They're running for their lives. Abimelech, the king, doesn't realize Sarah's, Abraham wife, Sarah's Abraham's wife and takes her as his own wife in chapter 20. God makes everybody in Abimelech's house infertile. On the flip side... Abraham's nephew Lot attaches himself to Abraham. And so God blesses Lot richly, protects him from danger. In summary, the promise that blessing or cursing depends on one's dealings with Abraham, it holds true. 
time and time again in Abraham's life. Then when Isaac comes on the scene, right after God spares him from being sacrificed, Genesis 22, God says this to Abraham. Abraham, in your offspring, note before it was in you, now it's in your offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you obeyed my voice. Language like this indicates that Abraham, and by extension his offspring, served something like a priestly function, we could call it, for the rest of the families on earth. In other words, they are mediators of God's blessing to the nations. And this isn't just a passive function that Abraham plays unwillingly. He's, we've got a story in Genesis 18 that, in which Abraham takes up his priestly role very actively, actually, pleading on behalf of a city that has become so wicked that God intends to destroy it. Remember that story? Abraham successfully begs God to spare the city if even a small number of righteous people can be found in it. It seems that Abraham is quite serious about this aspect of his calling, uh, namely God's intention that blessing wouldn't stop with his family, but rather would be extended through his family to every other family on earth. How does this all point to Christ and to the cross? In the years following Abraham's death, unfortunately, Abraham's descendants don't always embrace this aspect of their calling, quite like their father Abraham did. They don't always show interest in blessing other human families at times in their history. They take pride in their privileged position and show little concern for the nations around them. So when this one particular offspring of Abraham and Isaac comes along, the one named Jesus of Nazareth, some of his words and actions toward people of other ethnic groups, other families on earth, ruffle feathers among his own. I mean, he teaches in ways that make people marvel at him at first. They're awestruck until he tends to get to the punchline where he suggests that, hey, actually some from outside Abraham's family might experience the kingdom of God before some of those within Abraham's biological family. That makes people want to kill him. In other words, Jesus demonstrates a scandalous insistence on inviting those outside the blood family of Abraham to experience the blessings of God's kingdom that were promised to Abraham and his descendants. But Jesus' priestly function isn't seen, actually, most clearly in his teaching, or even in his healing, but rather on that Good Friday. At the cross, he assumes the ultimate mediatorial role, shedding substitutionary blood, not just for the blood relatives of Abraham, but for people of all nations. When the Apostle Paul reflects on this after the fact, on how Jesus mediated God's blessing to the families of earth in a way that none of Abraham's other offspring before ever had, it dawns on him, you know, we should be reading the promises to Abraham's offspring as to a singular offspring. So here's where Paul points us with the benefit of hindsight, right? Looking at this side of the cross. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, namely Christ. In other words, Christ is the one in whom all families on earth would be blessed. 
because it's through him and him alone that any of us can gain access to God. What that means, friends, is that this very night, you are either a recipient of God's blessing or you remain under the curse of sin. And which of those is true of you depends on exactly one thing, your relationship to Jesus Christ, the ultimate offspring of Abraham. If you've been united to him by faith, then you're one of those who's been blessed through Abraham's offspring, as was promised. But if you haven't yet been united to him by faith, then you remain under the curse until you place your trust in him. I've been praying, as have many in our congregation, that tonight even would be the night that someone becomes a son or daughter of Abraham, adopted into the family. You can do so simply by turning from your sin turning to Christ in faith. Maybe you'd start with a prayer and uh, the bands could come up uh, in which you'd say something like this prayer. Would you all bow your heads with me uh, in prayer? You might say something like this. God, would you join me to Jesus Christ? Would you make his destiny my destiny? Would you put to death my old self with its sin, even as Jesus was nailed to the cross? And would you raise me to new life again, even as Jesus was resurrected from his own tomb? As I turn from my sin, God, and as I turn towards you, I trust that I can only be restored to right relationship with you through the work of Jesus, not through any work of my own. Would you unite me to Christ on the basis of what he has done? In Jesus' name, amen. If the Lord moves in your heart to pray some sort of a prayer like that, please consider letting us know. One of us would love to talk with you, pray for you, and equip you as you get started on your faith journey.